Hey, good morning. Well, welcome, you guys, to Redemption. Uh, if it's your first time here, my name is Ricardo. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, one of the ways you can learn more about redemption or who we are um, is, one, to continue to keep coming here. And the other reason is to take the information card that's in the seat in front of you, fill out your name, your email address, um, any questions you have regarding redemption. We'd love to get back to you and answer those questions. In short, our mission is to make disciples who see that all of life is all for Jesus. And so, again, I want to personally welcome you here, and I'm glad that you're able to uh, join with us today. We will be going through uh, the book of Daniel. Um, just by uh, introductory, one, I uh, showed up this morning and everything was, I felt fine, and um, about an hour and a half ago, I didn't feel very fine, and um, not to gross you guys out, but I was, um, um, stuff was coming out of my mouth, and so, uh, so just give me some grace up here. If I run off the stage, uh, you guys will know, just pray, and I'm sure uh, one of the guys will come and lead you in a very awesome time, and so uh, if anything, we'll have an awesome day today if something like that goes down, so uh, just ask, I don't know what it was. In fact, I think I do. Jim Mullins, who is our pastor of community and global engagement, is always trying to get us to eat food outside of our comfort zone. And um, yesterday we went to a particular restaurant. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it was not American food. And uh, he texted this morning and said, I'm on my way to the urgent care. And I was like, wow, that sucks. And then I was sitting here, and then I started getting sick, and I ran outside, did my bid, and I'm thinking, Jim, you stinking dog, man. So... <laughs> So that's that. Um, uh, first, I have an announcement that I have, and it's, it's a hard announcement that I have to make, but I need to make it. Um, U of A won the national championship in basketball, or baseball, so congratulations. All right, back to godly things. Um, in all honesty, I just want to congratulate those, those guys. The Bible does say, you know, love your enemies, so uh, congrats. Uh, um, also, um, a couple of weeks ago, we, um, we finished a class called Bible Boot Camp. And it wasn't just a class, it was literally a boot camp where we uh, had about 30 students participate in a 14-week uh, every Tuesday morning at 5.30 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. Um, and had intense scripture memorization and tests and presentations. And so um, I wanted just to honor them this week at every service. So if you were uh, an attendee of Bible Boot Camp, would you please stand up? Yes. Would you? We'll give it up for the two people here. Yeah. So he's going to hate this. I didn't know Joe was there. Joe was our valedictorian. And so uh, if, you know any, if you need to know anything about the Bible, just go to Joe. He knows it all. So I want to congratulate you guys and take your seat. I want to congratulate them. And uh, yeah, go ahead and congratulate them again. And so that was our first trial. We made a lot of mistakes. Um, one was not having them wake up at five. Wake up at four thirty to get here and uh, be ready to go at five thirty in the morning. So uh, we will announce that again the next time we do Bible boot camp. Uh, probably we'll announce it in uh, October, to November, and the class again will start in uh, February and we'll open it up to whoever wants to be uh, <laughs> to be put through that. And so uh, that'll be available for you guys. Uh, the, the second announcement I have is, uh, it's not really an announcement. I know a lot of you, I showed you guys before that I was kind of finishing my master's program, and a lot of you guys asked how that was going. Um, I'm pleased to say that I'm, com- I'm finished. I finished on Thursday. Uh, I, yeah, thanks. <laughs> my wife should actually be here right now. We finished on Thursday. Uh, so I'm pleased to say I will never go to school again, ever. Ever and so some of it, I, it was a theological school that's a distance learning based in Seattle and I got a master's art, arts in global urban leadership and so all of you guys who are still in school and doing your masters and PhDs God bless you guys that was not for me um, and I'm glad that it's it's over so I do appreciate your prayers and uh, we're thankful for that and uh, yeah so I'm um, good to go and so just kind of give you a run for the next of the summer while I have you the rest of the summer is we will next week I will be out of town I'm leaving tomorrow morning 
Uh, my wife and kids are already in Sacramento. They left last week, and so I'm driving up to Sacramento to be with them from vacation. Uh, Vince Garvey, you guys know Vince. Vince will come down from Flagstaff, and he'll get a chance to teach and give us an update on what's happening in Flagstaff. And then I'll be back the following week. We will finish the Daniel series after going through the first or the faithful series, looking at the first six weeks of Daniel. And then after that, for the month of August, we're going to look at the four attributes, uh, four attributes of God. Not all the attributes, but four attributes of God uh, during the four Sundays in August. And after that, the rest of the year, we're going to be looking at uh, the book of First Peter. And so um, just be thinking through that uh, for your devotion time. And so uh, that's all I have for time announcements. If you guys have your Bibles, you please meet me in, uh, in Daniel chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, would you please raise your hand and one of the guys will get you a copy of a Bible. Uh, if you don't own one, please keep the, the Bible that um, one of the ushers get to you and, um, and keep it so you can have a copy of your, the Word of the Lord. Last week we started or continued in the series of, uh, of Faithful and we started in the book of Daniel. And what we saw in the book of Daniel was ultimately four young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who responded to the faithfulness of God. Ultimately, to the promise of God and the word of God that it was sent through them through the letter of Jeremiah, and how they are to seek the peace or the shalom or the welfare of the city that God had, had taken them to. They had been ripped away from their family, and now they find themselves um, in Babylon, which we said was a pluralistic society. Um, what that means is there's many gods, many beliefs. Um, at best, they were indifference towards the faith in God, and at worst, the culture was, was antagonistic towards their faith. And what we, see, what we see is that they were able to honor God, to be faithful to God, and not defile themselves. Well, now as we enter into week two, the question is not so much how do we be in the world but not of the world, but the question is if God says that they would be able to find their peace and seek in the peace of the city, what happens when we are faithful to God? What happens as believers when we honor God, when we listen to God, when we do exactly what he's called us to do, and yet the circumstances around us are bleak? Meaning there's no peace. Um, what happens in situations when a spouse comes to you and says, I no longer be, be married to you? When a child leaves, when there's a death, when you're laid off from work, what do we do even though we're honoring God and we're faithful to his commandments? How do we sustain our faith in the midst of calamity and destruction? And I think in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel gives us a glimpse of what that looks like. He gives us a glimpse of how he responds to a faithful God. And so four things that we'll look at when we get to the part of when Daniel speaks is, one, there's a faith in God's character. Um, there's a faith in what God could do, what God has done, and ultimately what God promises to do. And so without further ado, would you guys uh, just join me in Daniel chapter 1. We've got 50 verses here, 49 verses, and so we've got a lot to cover. It starts, it says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His, spirits was his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Now here's the context. Um, much like when Daniel, uh, when we saw Joseph and Pharaoh, Pharaoh has a dream, no one could interpret it. And so now Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, but here's the issue. He calls his, his, his wise men, so these were the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the magicians. The, these men were trained to be able to interpret dreams. Um, they were trained to be able to study the stars and the points of the day. Not that their interpretations would be accurate, but they at least can interpret the dream. The only catch was they needed to know the dream in order to interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't remember his dream. And so he comes to uh, the, the wise men and he says, essentially, I don't know my dream, but I had a dream. Um, and I need you to interpret it. That's a terrible place to be if you work for someone like that. I, I don't know if you've ever had a boss who hasn't trained you to do anything, 
um, never told you to do anything like this before, and says, your, 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 your job is on the line if you don't do it. You got to look at him and say, are you kidding me? And Nebuchadnezzar is the worst boss because he flips out. And you say, how do you know he flips out? Well, look at verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb and your house shall be laid in ruins. Okay, just a side note. Don't work for anyone who has the power to kill you. Um, burn your houses, like, that's not a good deal, that he goes to them and says, can you do something you've never done and that no one can do? And they're like, no, we can't do it. He goes, okay, if you can't do it, you're going to be torn from limb to limb, right? So they're in a terrible position. And so they can't do it. They come back to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, hey, we need more time. And then he says, no, you're trying to buy time. The dream, you probably know it, but you don't want to tell me. And therefore, he makes an edict that every one of the wise men are to be killed. And that means every wise person, meaning Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The poor guys weren't even there. This is two years after chapter one. They're, they're not even um, in the highest rank yet. They have no idea what's happening. And so there's a man named Arioch who goes to Daniel to tell Daniel, essentially, I'm here to, to take you out. Um, again, this doesn't make sense to us because my guess is none of us have, um, we've probably been fired, probably been laid off. But I don't know if any of our bosses ever said, I'm going to kill you. Right? I, just, I just don't think that's the context, but we'll, we'll, we'll try to read into it. And so here's, here's Daniel's response uh, in verse 12. It says, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of, the Babylon, of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And so I don't know how that conversation went, but this man had a job to go out and kill all the wise men. And when he came to Daniel, it seems like Daniel was pretty confident. It seems like he's pretty calm. And I, I don't know what happens in situations like that. Hey, Daniel, how you doing? I've been good, Eric. How you doing? Hey, I'm here to kill you today. I, 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 don't, I don't know, like, how that goes, but Daniel's response here is, is pretty unique. He, he looks at him and he says, uh, he declared to Arioch, the king's, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? I mean, he just says, why does he want to do it so fast? Paraphrase, the king is tripping. I mean, no one, no one could do what he's calling him to do. And then Daniel has a response here that lets us know that he trusts in the character of God first. His faith is in God's character. Verse 16 says that Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. I don't think that Daniel goes to the king and says, I know I will get it done. I believe that Daniel's first and foremost, in the, in the sense of saying we're obeying God, we trust God, things around us are not the way it's supposed to be. Um, we may not be in, in a work environment or work climate where these type of mandates or pressures are placed on us, but we do live in a world constantly, especially as believers in Jesus, that when we find ourselves obeying God, listening to God, and yet things around us are not going the way that we think they should be. And, and not that we're asking for something huge, but we, we honor uh, the Lord, we raise our kids the way that they, that they should go, and yet they're not Christians. We honor our spouses, and yet there's still tension, there's still conflict. We work well in work, what we talked about last week. We, we're faithful in our vocation, and yet there's always the temptation, or excuse me, there's always the threat or fear that we will be laid off. What do we do in those moments? And the first thing that Daniel gives us is, by going to the king, he believed and trusted in the, in the character of God. Before we can ever move on as people to asking God for things and the things that God does for us, we have to first understand and believe and have faith in his character. 
I believe as Christians so often, our prayer requests are usually about what we can get from God. And they're usually things about what God can do for us, which, don't get me wrong, we'll get to that later. That's important. But we don't just start with just an adoration of who God is. Just being able to see that God is merciful, that God is gracious, that God is kind, that God is glorious, that God is great. And us seeing his character gives us a sense of rest. You see, Daniel, Daniel himself is calm in this moment because he's able to go to the king and go, you're going to kill us anyway, so at least give us some time so we can talk to our Lord. And I believe that Daniel is able to do that because in, in chapter 1, what we saw is that God had given Daniel gifts. And one of those gifts was visions and interpretations. And so he's able to trust in the character of God, to be able to love God and know God. Give me a couple illustrations of what that's like. In the Psalms, we see that David... David prays, and one of his prayers is that he, he says, one thing I ask, and this I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and that I may gaze upon his beauty. He's not saying, I want something from God. He's not saying, I want God to give me a comfortable life. He's saying, this is the one thing that I seek, the one thing that I ask more than anything, is that I would be able to see God's character and see his beauty. Wayne Grudem, his a systematic theologian who lives in the valley, talks about God's beauty in this, is that God's beauty is that everything in God, everything that is to be desired is found in God. That there's a sense that if we just rest in his character, that his character alone begins to shape us. It's the reason why when we start our liturgy, we start off with adoration. So many Christians say you need to start with sin, and we go, the Bible doesn't start with sin. The Bible starts with God creating and saying it is good. We see his character. Therefore, we start with the character of God. In fact, it's looking at the character of God and examining ourselves that we see that we're sinners. We see that he's holy and that we are not. And so when we have a true relationship with somebody, um, even on human levels, we, we love that person. Like, like I said before, my, my wife has been out of town for, for a week now. My wife and my boys. Um, miss my wife. It's kind of good to have the boys away for just a little bit. Um, and and I, I don't miss my wife because she irons my clothes really well. I don't, I don't miss my wife because she makes really, really good food for me. I, I, don't, I don't miss my wife because of just those things. Now, don't get me wrong. I miss those things, right? I'm walking around Costco. I don't know where anything is, right? And so I, I, do, I do miss those things. But what I really miss is Holly. I, I want to see Holly just to be with Holly, not so what she can do for me, but I want to see those blue eyes. I want to touch her. I want to hug her. I want to say I love you. Like, I, I miss, I'm going to see her tomorrow, so I'm, I need to stop. All right, so there, there's a sense where I, I want to, I want just her. And that, in a, in a similar way, is how we should respond to God, first starting with this character. The second thing that we see is not just faith in God's character, but a belief and faith in what God could do. The situation is bleak for Daniel and his friends. And he, he has a dependence upon God, he has a dependence upon others, and he shows his dependence by going to God in prayer. Verse 17, it says, Then Daniel went to the house and made the matter known to Hananiah, to Misael, and to Ezariah, his companions. And he told them to seek the mercy from God, the God of heaven, the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. He starts off with God's character, and then he goes and petition. He's saying the only thing we can do is, one, I need to tell my friends about this. One, this is my community. This is my community of faith, of which we talked about last week, being in biblical community. These are people who believe the way I believe. These are people who think the way I think. And they're in the same profession as me, so if it happens to me, it's going to happen to them. And so he comes to his friends and say, let's pray and let's seek God's mercy. So at its best is, what do you do first when situations bad. What, do, what is your first response when situations seem bleak? 
Is your, is your response first to tell everybody on Facebook, situations look bad, boss is tripping, he's trying to kill me, right? Is that, is that, is that what we first do? Or, or do we run to the people of God and ultimately say, can you pray with me on this? Can, can we seek God's behalf on this? Can we seek his mercy? And I, I think you guys know this, but I, if there's something I really believe that God has impressed upon my heart personally and corporately as a church is that we be known as a, as a church that prays. And not even known that, that people know us for it, but that we're known for it. That our first response is not to complain. Our first response is not to worry. Our first response is not to be anxious. Our first response is to pray in the little things as well as in all things. I, this, is, this is very convincing to me um, that personally, when I knew less about God, I prayed way more. The more I grew in my understanding of God, the more I grew in my understanding of theology, and the more I grew in my understanding of doctrine, I prayed less, which makes no sense. I've seen that churches that I would look at and say, I don't think they have a good grip on theology or good grip on doctrine. They really don't preach through the Bible. Um, I, I really don't think so. And yet, when I meet with those pastors and the people of those churches, man, there's an unwavering commitment to the Lord in prayer. And yet, in churches like ours who preach the Bible, who are gospel-centered and outward-focused, there, there's a sense almost we trust in our knowledge and not in our God. There's a sense, personally, if I'm just being honest, that it's so easy for me to trust in what I know instead of trust in what I know and believe what God can do. And there's a lot of hang-ups. I get it. There's a hang-up of prayer because we say if God's sovereign and he knows what he's going to do and he controls all things, we've been saying that that was the theme of Joseph's life, that is exactly the theme of the entire book of Daniel, is that God is absolutely sovereign, then why pray? And, and that's a good question. Here's a way I answer that personally. Because God is sovereign. Because he knows all things, we should pray. Of all people, people who hold an understanding of the absolute sovereignty of God, ultimately would use language, God gets bigger and I get smaller. And if that's true, why would we not take all requests to a big God? Why would we not take every single request to a big God? Little things, big things. One of my favorite parables in the, in the teachings of Jesus in the Bible is in Luke chapter 18. There, there, he talks about the persistent widow. And it's the only time in Scripture where God compares himself to someone who's unjust. He said, you see what the unjust judge does? Because this woman keeps pestering him. Will God not answer his children? It, let, let, me, let, me, let me tell you a little bit more about this, about just prayer. Prayer in itself never changes God. God never changes. There's a doctrine of immutability in the sense that God never changes. However, prayer sometimes and often does change his circumstances. That God in his sovereignty begins to change the circumstances of our lives. He takes people who do not believe in Jesus and makes them believers in Jesus. He takes couples who are on the verge of divorce and he reconciles them. He takes people that are broken and he heals them. Um, he takes things that are lost and then he helps you find them. There's a sense where God oftentimes, but not always, changes circumstances. However, every time it changes the person who prays. Every single time, whether God answers a prayer in the way that you desire to be answered or not, God begins to change you. I've never met a man, I've never met a woman who has, in, after getting on their knees and praying to the Lord, says, you know what, my circumstance hasn't changed, but my perspective, my understanding of the circumstance has changed significantly. I, I, when I talk to moms who are at home with their kids all day long, what they say is, if I feel like I have time with the Lord, if I'm praying with the Lord, my kid's behavior may not change, but the way I respond to them, I take them out of a chokehold, or I, I loosen it up a little bit. There's a sense where, there's a sense, there's a sense where I can relate in a different way. I, 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 was, I was thinking about why people don't pray, and this is just my thoughts, as I think people don't pray sometimes because, um, because they believe that they don't know enough. 
or they believe that they know too much. Uh, on one side, there's a belief that people don't know enough, and when the Bible says pray according to the will of the Lord, that we're constantly trying to find out the will of the Lord. And so when you, you are trying to apply for a job um, or you're looking for a spouse or whatever the prayer request may be that you feel like, well, if it's not in the Lord's will and you hear it in prayer, Lord, we want this, but if, but if not, if it's not in your will and, and if it's not over here and it doesn't happen today and there's all of these disclaimers, here, here, pray according to the will of God as much of the will of God as you know. And here's the thing, because he's God and because he's sovereign, he'll sort it out. I prayed for all sorts of things that I think were probably heretical. And later I learned more and go, oh, I probably shouldn't have asked for that person not to be living anymore, right? That's not a part of God's will. That's a joke. That's a joke. That's a joke. That's a joke. Um, but there's, there's a sense where God sorts it out. That's why God says, come to him as children. My son has a better belief in God and the big things of God than I think I do. Because we read the Jesus storybook Bible to him, and so he hears about Jesus healing people. So to him, when everyone's, anyone's sick, hey, such and such is not coming to our redemption community tonight, his friends, because she's sick. Let's just pray for Jesus to heal her. And <laughs> like, duh, right? And there's just, there's just a sense there where it's like, yeah, but, you know, well, maybe we should. And maybe we should. I, I think that, that we don't need to worry about the will of God. And as I said before, sometimes we know, we think we know too much. And I don't think that's a cock. I don't think I normally say, you know, I know too much to pray. But I think that somehow it shouldn't be the more you know about God, the more doctrine you know, the, the less you pray, but the more you should push into God. I think there's a great sense of um, pride that happens as, as this, you can explain, we can explain it away. And there's some things that God does through prayer. There's something that God does in our life. There's some things that we, we don't know why or how he does it, but he does it. Daniel goes to his friends. He trusts in the character of God. And he says, here's the deal, guys. We are in a serious situation. Um, if we don't get this interpretation, we all die. So let's pray, and let's see if God answers. I'm going to listen to Tim Keller, and he says that God will always answer the prayers of his children. He always answers what his children ask or what they would have asked if they knew more. And what he's communicating in that is God always answers, and when he doesn't answer, it's because there's something that he knows is being sovereign that is not good for you and not good for the flourishing society, so he withholds it. And some of us know that. There's some things we prayed for. I want this. I want this. I want this girl. She's the best girl in the world. And then two weeks later, you go, oh, Lord, thank you. She was not the best girl in the world, right? That, that, that happens to us, and we go, wow, Lord. And sometimes we don't even get that perspective. And sometimes we pray for healing, and people get healed. And sometimes we pray for healing, and people don't get healed. But that's never an excuse not to pray. Amen? I, I, da Daniel shows us this. Circumstances around Daniel are really hard. Um, I've never had my life threatened. Daniel's in that position, and he goes to his friends. Not only does he trust and have faith in the character of God, but he has faith in what God could do. And here's what God does next. Verse 19, it says, The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision that night, and then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Let me pause here for a second. Um, this is why I don't like Daniel. Um, I think I told you guys this before. Joseph and Daniel have been the two hardest characters for me in the Bible. You ever notice when you read Joseph, the story of Joseph, the story of Daniel, everything kind of goes all right for him? Like, don't get me wrong, Daniel was, Joseph was in prison for a while. That's not that good. But afterwards, he was doing really good. Daniel goes, he prays, and all of a sudden God answers him, and everything is going to be great here. I've never liked that. Like, it, it's always bothered me because I love David, right? David, man of God, and he does crazy things. Like, I can relate to that guy. Paul killed some people. I'm like, I can relate to that guy. And then Daniel is just like, man of prayer, gets thrown in the lion's den. What happened? Oh, he stiffs arms the lions. He gets out of there. And it's just kind of like, come on, are you serious? But it's God's word, and so he's going to teach us, right? 
Daniel now responds to now what God has done. And here's what God did. He answered his prayer. If anything, that should teach us we should ask. We should just ask. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. The, the other day I was talking to my, my wife and I said, how to go last night? She goes, literally I was up praying because Eli would not sleep. Not only would Eli not sleep, Noah's in the other room saying, I want this, I need this, and he's supposed to be asleep, and all I had to do was pray, and I said, what happened? She goes, for the first hour, nothing happened, and they went to sleep. I mean, we pray for little things. I lose everything. I lose my wallet. I lose my keys. I forgot where I lived the other day. I mean, there's just like, there's just things where, and I'm constantly praying, Lord, can you find my, my bag? The other day in the office, I was telling the guys, hey, have you guys seen my, my, you know, my backpack, my bag? And one of the pastors goes, man, is this like a reoccurring theme to you? And I said, yeah, man, why don't you just help me look for it, right? <laughs> and in my head, I just go, Lord, you know where this bag is. You're all knowing. Can you show me? And I was walking by, and in this random room, I don't know how it got there, so someone's jacking with me. It was there. And I said, you can jack with me all you want. God is on my side, right? <laughs> Took the bag and just went over it. So there, there's a sense where it teaches us we should, we should just pray. And so God reveals him a vision. And so a vision, of, uh, which is great, he shows him Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation of the dream. And then what does Daniel do? He immediately erupts back in prayer, but in praise. And I'm going to read his praises because it shows the character of God and ultimately Daniel's response and faithfulness. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings, and knowledge to those, and he, he gives wisdom and wise to the wise, and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in him. To you. O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and you have made known to me what we have asked you of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. It was after reading that, and I'm in my head thinking, this is why I don't like Daniel, because he just gets what he prays for. It's not easy to teach. It's not easy to apply. And then what I really believe that, that God began to press upon me is, God may have answered this, but God's answered plenty of prayers in our lives. Um, he's answered things that we never even asked for. That sometimes we get blessings from the Lord and we go, I didn't ask for this. And yet God knows. That it reminds me of Romans chapter 8 when it says that the Spirit prays for us and prays and utters in words that we can't even express that the Spirit is praying for us. And the Bible also lets us know that Jesus is our advocate, that he's standing at the right hand of the Father and that he's interceding for us. And so even though we are weak in prayer, that, that two people and the, the two persons of the Trinity, the, uh, two out of the three, are praying for us. The Spirit is praying for us. Jesus is interceding for us. And so when we pray, uh, it's a blessing for us to be able to draw near the Lord. And then God began to reveal something else to me. Uh, as I was studying, there, there's a German theologian named Walter Brueggemann, and he does a lot of Old Testament studying. And what he does in the Old Testament is um, he pointed out some of the things that sustained the faith of the exiles during this time. And, and, and upon research and study, what he says is one of the things that sustained their faith during these 70 some odd years is that they were able to tell dangerous stories, he says. And the most dangerous stories that they were able to tell each other was the greatest story of redemption that had ever happened in the history of Israel up until that point. And that story was the story of the Exodus. That they would get around in his families and his mothers and, and fathers and children, and they would tell the story how once God's people had been in a foreign land where they were slaves, where they were captives, and in that land that they cried out to God. And Yahweh sent someone by the name of Moses, and Yahweh flexed his muscles and his sovereignty and redeemed them from that land and brought them to the promised land. And that was the most dangerous story, how no matter how powerful Pharaoh was, that God was more powerful. 
no matter how sovereign Pharaoh thought he was, that God was far more sovereign. And they told these stories in light of if he was able to do it then, that he'd be able to do it again. And that's the way it would sustain them. And so God may not answer all of my prayers, but the greatest prayer that I can ever have for myself, the greatest prayer that you can ever have for yourself, the greatest prayer that you can ever have for anybody is that God would, would do the same thing. And we know that might have been the greatest story of redemption in the Old Testament, but the greatest story ever written in the Bible, the greatest story in the entire world. The fact, the only story that makes sense out of the whole world is not that God sent a mediator to rescue them out of slavery, but that God came himself to rescue us from sin. That Jesus himself, the greatest story that will sustain us during our time of exile in which we are um, now with the Lord and yet not fully, that the kingdom of God has come in Christ Jesus and yet we don't fully experience it, that we know that by faith in Jesus that we are as good as in heaven and yet we live in a world of destruction and calamity and things don't go the way that they want, we always want them to go and yet we should be able to rejoice and erupt in praise for the story alone, that God left heaven, that he came into our world to rescue and renew all of creation in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ that we may now be free, forgiven of sins, that we have now a promised inheritance in Christ Jesus, that the greatest gift ever is that he would write our names on his book. And this is exactly what God has done. And so I look at this and go, I can't be mad at Daniel. My life may not be as bad or as good as Daniel's, as bad or as good as yours, but the greatest news ever is not only did God come and redeem us, but he promised to be with us by his spirit. Amen? And so we can rejoice in that. We, 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 we live in this world by first starting with the character of God, a faithful God, and then praying to God all sorts of prayers, from trying to find our keys to, to, to asking God to redeem us, to heal us, asking God to, do, to bring our spouses back, our children back, our parents back, um, asking God to, to help us with some things that happened in our past that just keep coming up. And then we can praise God for what he's done. We can praise God for what he's done in Christ Jesus. Just a remembering of the gospel daily. When we say preach the gospel to yourself daily, remembering who you are in Christ Jesus. And though, though everything else you could possibly lose, you could possibly lose your family. You could possibly lose your relationships. You could possibly lose your job. Everything else can fail. But the most important thing in the world, you can never lose. The most important relationship in the world, if you have faith in Jesus and have believed upon Jesus, you can never lose. And God has secured that. Um, and we say this quite often, that God is not safe. He didn't say, come to me, and everything's going to be okay. These guys are in captivity. But he says, come to me, and I will make things new. Come to me, and you will be forgiven. Come to me, and you will see that my yoke is light. And so we can rejoice in the gospel. And that's exactly what Daniel does. He rejoices in what God has done, and we can rejoice over and over again in what God has done. And the last thing we can see is have faith in what God will do. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went to Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he, when he said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king their interpretation. So now he says, okay, hey, I have their interpretation. Bring me before the king. Remember, Daniel's 18 right now. And he's about to talk to this king that's really upset right now, um, just really, really upset. So he goes to the king, and this is what the king says in verse 26. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, <laughs> one, I love this, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery um, that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. Your dream and visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. 
to you, O king, as you lay in the bed, came thoughts of what would, ha- what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. And so here's what happens. Dan- Daniel first says, first of all, nobody can interpret this, not even me, but God has interpreted this, that when God speaks, God's going to speak, and he can speak to just about any way. We know, first and foremost, the highest authority that we have is, is the Bible, but God wanted to reveal himself, and the way that he wanted to reveal himself in this particular time is he wanted to reveal himself through the dream of a person who did not believe in him. And then he sends now this 18-year-old boy to be honest with him, and you see the humility of Daniel in verse 30. He says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And here's what he says the dream is now. You saw, O king, behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And the head of the image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff on the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a mountain and filled the earth. So now he interprets the dream. And he says, there was a head and there's a head of gold. And the next section was silver. And then there was, there was another section of, of bronze. And at the very bottom here, there was, there was partly clay and partly iron. And so you see um, the importance and the value. And so he interprets, he goes, but then there was this stone that, that no human hand could make. And this little stone, this humble little stone came and crushed all of them. And over time, that little stone didn't grow up to be a statue, but it grew up to fill the entire earth. And then Daniel looks at the king and begins to interpret it. He says to the king, first, you're the head. God has given you gifts. God has given you talents, which lets us know that as things rise, as company rise, as, as people in politics rise, as leaders rise, ultimately God's sovereign hand is involved with that. And so Daniel lets the king know, you're the king. Your kingdom right now is dominating. You, you, your kingdom is established. You control the beast. You control the world. You control anything. You can just go in the countries and rip poor teenagers like myself away. That's what you can do. And even a sovereign God has allowed you to do that. But you don't honor God. And he goes, you know what? There's going to be an inferior kingdom that's going to rise up after you. And what most theologians would say is that next kingdom is the kingdom that takes over when you continue to read the rest of the book of Daniel. And it's the Medes and the Persians. And then he says, you know what, after that, there's going to be another inferior one to that that's going to take over. And again, the theologians and historians would say that, that's Greece, and they're going to have their power. And then there's going to be another kingdom that's going to take over, and that will be Rome. And he says, all of these kingdoms were built by the strength and the wisdom of man, even though God allowed it to happen. And then Daniel tells him probably the most important verse in all of chapter 2. In verse 44, he says this, And in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another, another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, and the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold 
a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is true. Daniel tells him, right now, it's good for you. You're not living in God's ways, and yet God has still allowed you to prosper. Sometimes it is so hard for us, um, for those of us who would say we believe in Jesus, to watch people do things in such a way that are destructive, to watch people do things in such a way that are unjust, to watch people do things in such a way that are dishonest and yet succeed and get the things that we would want. And yet what we see is God has a plan for that. God has a plan for that. Some of you, if you're not careful, it'd be easier for us to go, yeah, we're like Daniel in this story. No, we're not. Most of us are much like Nebuchadnezzar. We may not have the kingdom that we want, but we try so hard to build our kingdom. We try so hard to build our reputation. My, my guess is, is when Nebuchadnezzar heard that he was the gold head, he goes, <laughs> that's right, you know, that's me. I'm on top. And Daniel ends the story with saying, you won't always be. Sometimes right now, you guys are, um, we, we as people, even as Christians, we find ourselves trying to build our own kingdoms, and we do it in such a way that we say that we're honoring God, and we, we may sprinkle a little scripture on it, but we're doing it in such a way that people may look at us not realizing that God has given us these, these gifts and his talents for a reason, not to puff ourselves up. And so what Daniel tells to Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately what God reveals to him is, keep building, but there's going to come a day where the kingdom of God will shatter that. And guess what? The kingdom of God will start very, very small, but it will grow. And not only will it grow, it will fill the entire earth, and no people will come after it. This would not be a kingdom of people. This would not be a kingdom of man, but it will be a kingdom of God whose king that we know ultimately is Jesus. It's exactly what Jesus says when he comes in the, the very beginning of Mark, the gospel of Mark. He says the kingdom of God has come. And for centuries after the book of Daniel, they waited for this kingdom to come, and the kingdom of God would mean to them the restoration of the earth, and not only that, but the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Jesus brought. And so when we, we now look at this and go, we have an option. Do we want to live in the kingdom of man in which we will work our own lives into it, we will build our own stories, we will create our own worlds, and we will live under the values of whatever system, the kingdom that we live in, or will we, like Daniel, or will we, like the people of God, submit to the humble kingdom that Jesus has ushered in? Will we submit to the values that, ki that the kingdom has been ushered in through the king? And people always say, how do we know what the kingdom of God will be like? You have to look at the king. You have to look at the, the understanding of Jesus, the characters of Jesus. Will we be marked by love? Will we be marked by sacrifice? Will we be mark, marked by, by grace? Will we be marked by mercy? Will we be marked by honesty? Will we, be, will we mark what Jesus said, I can only see what my Father doing? Is that the life that we have, or do we find ourselves living and being shaped by the kingdom in which we live in? And so theologians say that when the kingdom of God has come in Jesus, when he ushered it in, that it's already and not yet. And what that means is the kingdom of God has come, but not yet fully meaning it's come in the people who believed in Jesus and that because the Spirit of God is in you, the kingdom of God has come. I like to tell people to think the one thing about you that is heaven-ready is the Spirit of Christ that is in you. And therefore, you have the ability by faith in Jesus to be able to live the kingdom values. Though you sin, though you fail, though you stumble, because it's not all ready, that you still have a love for the king. Daniel tells the king, if you continue to live your way, it will fail. You will have no peace and no rest. And I will tell you this, some of you, you have no peace and no rest. You move from one thing to the next, to the next, 
from one relationship to the next, from one job to the next, and you think the next thing will be it. If I can make this much money, if I can have this spouse, I'm going to do it for the glory of God. I'm going to use it because I can do more ministry with it. And it's like, no, not at all. The, the, the reason why Nebuchadnezzar couldn't sleep, the reason why he wanted to kill people was because he was very insecure. You know what insecurity is? Insecurity is produced by, by us trusting in ourselves and the things around us and not in the Lord. I think some of the most insecure people are people in leadership, people like myself. Some of the most insecure people are people who have people answering to them. And you see it because they erupt in anger. They, they, they erupt when things don't go their way because they're trusting themselves. And yet we see Daniel, because he trusts in the kingdom of God, he's calm. You're going to kill me? Okay, at least let me pray. At least let me seek God. And there's a sense of boldness. He goes to the king and he essentially tells the king, yeah, you're hot right now, but you won't be forever. You won't be forever because you don't trust in the king and you don't trust in his kingdom. The question that we have to answer ourselves is, is our life built off what we want? Is our, our businesses, is our family and our relationship built off what, what this world teaches us? Or is it built off us being obsessed with the kingdom because we're in love with the king? That's a question we have to answer ourselves individually and even as a family. When Nebuchadnezzar sees what Daniel does, and he's excited, he's excited, even though he doesn't really want to worship God, and here's his response, he promotes him. Verse 46, it says, The king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of incense be offered to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar is not saying, I believe in your God now, I'm going to follow your God. It's a polytheistic culture. Nebuchadnezzar is like, cool, this is another God I can just add to the list. The, the, the thing I would challenge and myself personally is, have I just added God to the list? And have we just added God to the list of whatever our gods are? Because I want approval, because I want comfort, because I want power, because I want control, do I seek God? Or do, do I start off with where Daniel started off? Because God has all control. Because God ultimately has the ultimate approval. He's the one who says he would never leave me nor forsake me. Um, it's because God has absolute power. In fact, he says the kingdom of God does exist in talk, but it exists in power. Um, do, 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 I, do, I, do I go to God because God is a comforter, and he's given us a spirit of comfort? Daniel started there. Dan, Daniel then moved on to saying, and I will constantly run to God in prayer. I will praise him for what he's done, and what sustains him is ultimately knowing one day there will be a kingdom. I may not experience it now. People around me do suffer. People around me do hurt. I may suffer loss, but what I know is the one thing that I have that I will never lose is that my relationship with God, and we can say as Christians, our relationship with Jesus, and not only our relationship with Jesus, that though this world may fail us, and though the relationship in this world may fail us, the promise of God, the word of God, never changes. Amen?